that I've been doing a lot of screening recently and not oh, a whole man. lot of listening. Yeah. Everybody's incompetent. No, no, it's not even it. It's just, you know, it goes back to staffing. I mean, right now, and I think I've talked to you about this in, in the past that you know, right now the, uh, the profession is sort of in a position of kind of hurting for, Oh, I know everybody's yeah. hiring. <laughs> well, I mean, you think about, you know, think about how a lot of firms because their projects went on hold had to either lay off or furlough their people. And so here we are at a position and we weren't actually one of those people. We, we were able to like keep people billing towards projects uh, that were active enough to kind of like ride through some of this, but yeah, that's yes, a, we did a nice have flex that you just did right there. Yeah. But I mean, <laughs> there, there was still the, the issue that a lot of our projects, just like a lot of everybody else's projects went on hold because people weren't sure is funding going to happen or is small projects and stuff. It's just like, can I afford that expense and, and things like that? And so, you know, a lot of things went on hold. And so for those firms who were able to keep staff, I mean, in some cases they kind of overworked those staff. In some cases they like laid those staff off and stuff. And you and I both probably talked to plenty of friends who've worked for different firms or have their own firms and stuff and, and have talked about the issues that they've been having. Uh, in yeah. regards to just like, you know, trying to stay alive during this kind of COVID lockdown and in essence, this project lockdown. So we're at a position, whereas like many other people are at the position of a lot of projects are coming back to life and we don't necessarily have, you know, because we were out obviously actively business developing plenty of other projects and stuff like that, pulling them in and stuff. And so you know, everybody's in a position right now of like having a lot of work and that's a good thing. You know, it's not, a, it's not a bad problem to have if you really think about it, but it's a problem to have when you take on too much work and you don't have enough staff to cover that work, because then what good are you doing? Both you, the client and ever, and even the staff that's working on it. And that's sort of, you know, in a position that I'm at is like everybody right now is just like really trying to pull people in and stuff. And so I mean, one of the things that I was thinking about is like, that was a different recession than our recession that we had in 08, where, you know, just like every project went away. It wasn't like it was put on hold and let's, you know, kind of like revisit it later, unless it was something that was, was years later that they revisited that project. So, oh yeah, in 2008, we wanted to do this project. You know, we had an architect on board and, you know, the, everything blew up and now we want to do that project again. Yeah. Okay. You know, right. that's, that's great and all, but different type of economic recession. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, we would see that that project would come back like years later, if it ever came back at all here, it was kind of like a temporary hold in a way. And so like the projects, they didn't go away. They just like, you know, went dormant for a little while. And now everybody wants their project to be the priority to like move forward. And you're just like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> Then it becomes a management slash leadership issue, right? Which oh, is totally. actually figuring out how to do that effectively. Because yes. if you can't do it effectively, you're either going to fail at it in one way or another. You're either yeah. going to avoid it because you, you have to, because there's other stuff that you got to do and there's only so many hours and people to do it. Or there's, you know, there's just, 
there's no way to win at that unless you can actually say you're on the waiting list or we don't we can't take this project right now at all right well it goes back to that whole you know think about this I mean, we, we've talked about it and it's like architects are bad at saying no because you know we really do you know have this mindset of the feast or famine it's you know it's just like we don't want a famine, so we want to feast and we want to keep feasting. But do you want to feast on some pretty crappy <laughs> fast food sometimes, right? Uh, sometimes, yeah. Yeah, uh, absolutely. But then that leads to more of that kind of project. I think that that begets more of the same when, when you get in that, because then you get good at it. And it's like, well, yeah. if we're good at this, we have standards and processes to help us do that you know, with one hand tied behind our back. Look how good we are at that really crappy work. And then it affects morale. <laughs> And then, yeah, and then so people I, uh, leave your company. Like, so it's, right. you have to say yes to the right things for the right reasons. And that is why I say it's a leadership issue. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we laugh. Uh, we oh. laugh to hide our, our cry. And this gets back to what? Yeah. All the screaming that you've been doing. <laughs> yeah. So that gets back to all the screaming that I've been doing. It's just like, I need people. This project, as much as we would love to say, let's hit the easy button and everything will be fine. You know, now, I mean, every project got their unique issues and this one is, is no different than any of the other ones. However, this one is one where we just, the experienced bodies that we need. Yeah. You need to replicate yourself because I can see, yeah. you sent me this picture just so everybody knows of your desk <laughs> and you have many monitors on this desk. And I'm thinking that the, the thought behind this is, we can't clone Cormac, but we can give him more screens. Yes. Yes. <laughs> That's so. the cloning. This is the cloning strategy. It's just like, what if we just double the number of screens? You could do double the amount of work then, right? <laughs> and that's it. That's it. That's the strategy. In all fairness of the four screens that are on my desk right now, one of them is the Mac to sit. Just special, special podcasting. Yeah. This is just your, your, your window into my world. Yeah. Exactly. So it'll, you know, it'll go away, you know, so that I can make way for my three monitors and <laughs> I can look at emails, chats and everything else on one, you know, Revit and in progress and all that other stuff on another. And then, you know, do your learning units on the third screen or whatever. <laughs> I, I, I do have my learning units on the third screen right now, currently on mute. So sorry, green roof people. I am. You're cheating was, on them. <laughs> I was listening. However, this what call is way more important. It's way more important. <laughs> As I was telling you earlier, it's like, you know, what's interesting is that the things that we're learning in this particular uh, CEU credit, our uh, lunch and learn is, it, it's interesting because it's it's issues that like he's saying, like, here are all the problems with green roof design. And as he was like flipping through all of the imagery, all of the imagery of all these failures are literally like, hand in hand with the manufacturer's details. And as I was saying to you, like architects aren't green roof specialists. I mean, we may know a little bit about green roofs. Architects we, are not any kind of building product specialist. And this they, is true. They don't want to be and they can't be. Exactly. Yeah. And the only time that we actually really do become green roof specialists is when a green roof fails it on fails. us. Yeah. Then you have and to be. We want to do green roofs again. However, we have been burnt and we would like to avoid that pain um, next time around. And so how is the best way to do that? Let's find a better product. Let me understand that product a little bit better. Let's try to detail that project a little bit better. And, you know, but so I was just look, 
looking at one and he was showing, you know, like standard failures around the drains. Well, that standard failure around the drain literally was virtually every green roof system out there's standard detail for how to detail out the roof drains. And, and I'm like, well, for us who is not, who are not the experts, and when we are going to the experts, which are the manufacturers, what is the alternative? If that manufacturer is not going to say, oh, yeah, our, our drains don't fail. I mean, we don't have like the, we, we've got like a little box. And sorry, I'm going to go into some boringness here. But, you know, we've, we've got. Welcome to architecture, people. We, we, we box it out. We fill that, that box out with stone. And then we have another ring where we basically prevent that stone from going into the roof drain. And so then we've got the roof drain. So we've got a buffer between our green roof media and the roof drain. However, I don't know if you know this about nature, but nature is unpredictable. Nature, yeah, nature, nature. I do. Yeah, nature (laughs) does not like to basically be told not to do something, and so it will creep up over that. This this is that saying: "Life will find a way." Exactly, exactly. (laughs) And so you know, it'll it'll pluck it up, and then you know, you have like roof drain issues that are getting clogged, and and so you're just like, okay, well. So if, if this is your standard detail, what do we do about it? And so do we just continue to like make a bigger and bigger buffer? So it'll take the nature longer and longer to get to that drain. Yeah. So you just slow the process down. But now, now you're like, you know, now we have this ugly four foot wide pit around our drains instead of like the one foot that the detail originally showed. And so, you know, we're just like, we want, you know, as much beauty on the green roof as we do like on anything else this is like cdc guidelines for social distancing originally it was three feet and everybody just said let's make it six it's the same but this is interesting right because you look at uh i don't know 100 percent of europe and singapore where every roof is green this has been solved people it's been solved many times now they're putting green roofs on buses because (laughs) they don't have any more buildings to put them on and they're putting them on taxi cabs now, granted, a car is different, but they figured this out on buildings. You would think that the there is such this weird reaction in the United States to green roofs because yeah. somebody at one point told them that it failed. And it's like, yeah, but like, look at these buildings in Norway that have been around for 500 years that have green roofs just because that's how they've always done it. And uh, they're still doing green roofs over there. They're not... It's, that is the most frustrating thing working with clients who or maintenance people, I should actually say. I was going to say that. Who just say, no, no green roofs because reasons. And it's like, yeah, okay, look at all these benefits. Look at all the energy savings that you can have. Look at what, look at the quality that this brings to your project and to the people who experience that project. And all of the things that you can do with teaching, using it as educational perspective, you can use mm-hmm. it as background as aesthetic as functional as all these things and it's no it's not does not it's not my built-up roof that i'm used to so frustrating exactly you know and it's just like i I don't want to do anything and then they're forced into accepting green roofs for you know for civil you know for stormwater management offsets Mm -hmm. and it's just like well you know you you have x amount of you know, stormwater management that you have to deal with on site. Well, but I've got an urban site, so I can't do that. Oh, well, then you should do green roofs or you have to pay for it. And like, mm, I have to pay for it. 
let me look at that green roof, you know, system, but what's the cheapest one? Yeah, right. Well, and what's interesting about it too, is when you do it, we, we did a green roof on a school on a very small portion of one roof of one building and it's won all kinds of awards. Do you know who cares about those awards? not the maintenance people. It's the misaligned incentives of the different parties and stakeholders who are part of the project. It's like my incentive is my guys have to be able to get up there and maintain this thing right. for X number of years. And you know, there's not that many people that I can employ to do this kind of a task in my you know, campuses obviously have budgets too. Right. And then there's the other side of it where the client who actually, you know, the, the larger kind of administrative client is just like, this is amazing. And it's their job to provide that leadership to the maintenance crew for their, you know, entity. Right. And, and, but, yeah. but there's kind of this weird tug of war going on out there. That's yeah. It's really hard to make progress in building technology. True. True. And, you know, of course, as we know that it's not maintained, which, you know, they're like, oh, you can put a green roof up all there all you want to, but I'm not going to take care of it. Yeah. That's when like, this I'm going up there like, with a weed whacker. <laughs> exactly. I'll, uh, I'll go and like, I'll you know, take just, care of it for you. <laughs> I'll either weed whacker it down or I'm going to essentially like let it die so that I don't have to take care of it. And so it's basically a dust bowl on, on your roof. And, but then it's the architect's failure, right? It's like sabotage exactly. by, by omission of just no maintenance. Exactly. Cause then you're like, wait, and they say, well, you know, the last time you did a green roof for us, I mean, you know, a year later, look at everything was dead. It's like, did it wasn't you maintain dead during, it? <laughs> exactly. It wasn't dead during the warranty period where it was being maintained by somebody else. But the second that it was turned over to you guys, you failed to take care of it and it died. Because you didn't make somebody accountable on your end for it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. There is some interesting thing because a lot of these companies Sorry that we're getting into the you know weeds of a <laughs> a, a specific thing. <laughs> uh, yes, your weed garden. I mean green roof. <laughs> <laughs> Just realized that pun intended. Um, but so post justified so, uh, puns. Yes. <laughs> so a lot of times we've been more recently dealing with manufacturers who will actually offer as part of their warranty like a five to ten year maintenance program. Oh yeah, just so they can get it to happen. Exactly. You know, That's it's like brilliant. so I know that over the the next 5 years if I take care of it, it will take hold, it will thrive and survive. If only architects did the same thing. Uh, I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it gives us that opportunity to say, well, you know, like over here if you look at if you look at this one where basically they took it over and they did no maintenance, it died. Well, and but this one right here, you know, now you're talking about x amount of dollars more expensive. However, it actually will survive because there's a, a maintenance program that the manufacturer will will provide as part of that, and you will actually get added benefit for this cost. This is so brilliant because plants are typically hard to establish anyway in, in yes. many places. Like, and they just need to be swapped out. Like, they don't all make it, and and nobody wants that to be their problem, especially in the beginning when they're learning a new system. So. This is a really smart move on the side of these green roof manufacturers. It, it is. It is. However, you yeah, know, it also it gets it, them used to it. And then when they, when the, when the contract expires, <laughs> yes, then the roof dies or, or something. I don't know. Hopefully it's, it's a success at that point. I mean, I would also yeah. assume that during that five-year process or whatever it is, 
there's some education going on so that it can be a smooth handoff to the maintenance crew. Exactly. You know, and it's just like, you know, hey, look at how you maintain it so that once it's established, it's minimal maintenance. And, you know, you just have to go in every so often instead of having to go up there and weed whack the hell out of the thing. You just do like little things. You do some small pruning or trimming back of things and boom, you've got a a roof that actually is performing the way it was designed to rather than just the, oh, it's going to be dead in a year and then we'll just have to rip it up or put gravel down. This is why continuing education actually is important for architects. Yes. It's yes. Because we are the ones who have to convince the client. And a lot of times it is exactly that. It is like pulling teeth, trying Mm -hmm. to get something like this that we know is really important for the future of their building, their campus, the profession of architecture, the built environment, the environment, all of these things. Yeah. Where it's easy to say no, it is hard to say yes, and therefore the architect needs to be the one armed with this information to put it in front of the client to make a really informed decision, not just a gut yes. reaction decision. Yeah. And so it's like, how else is that going to happen? And continuing education is is one of a few You know, and I say that like there are only a few ways in which the architect is actually going to get that information. They're either going to do it through research, they're going to do it by a rep reaching out and telling them that this exists, or they're going to do it through fulfilling continuing education requirements. And that is an interesting topic to them, or they've seen it done before. Like there's not that many options here, but on this kind of a thing, I mean, have you gone through that process with clients before where you're actually trying to do that convincing? Oh, totally. I make a statement to every one of like the the new architects that you know are graduating and are coming into our firm and working with me. It's just like, look, a lot of your job is going to be educating your client on the things that you are trying to accomplish in this. And and they're like, well, why is it my job to tell them what they want? I'm like, well, that literally is your job. Do they know how to design this? Do they know what it means to you know have a successfully built coordinated building no that's your job and so your job is to say you know ooh, wouldn't it be really nice if we did a green roof then go through the effort in the education of yourself to learn about that green roof so that you can convince your client on the benefits of having a green roof and, and that, so, this is i've always had this kind of allergic reaction to the word like like i like your design i like this about the project i've always had kind of a weird reaction yeah. i don't <laughs> i don't align with liking things because I guess it's just because it feels so surface level to me. And so when it comes to stuff like this, you can't just like it. You can't just float the idea and say, Hey, how about a green roof? That would look really nice. It's not about that. And that's why this education is so important through our own proactive means to find this stuff out, to find the real values and the real benefits and the real costs and the real maintenance and all of these like, like it, it is something that has to be seriously considered and it has right. to be, it has to go through kind of a, a process that a vetting and, yep. and that totally now it, it kind of depends on who you're going to be talking to. Cause if you're talking to the maintenance guy, you're going to talk about certain things. And if you're talking to right. an owner, you're going to talk about other things. And if you're going to talk to a user, you're going to talk about other things and you have to speak the language of all yep. of these people. And that is the job of the architect. And that yeah. is never as far as I know, talked about in school. It was never talked about. It was like, you're oh, just no, trying no, to convince your professor and you have to learn this academic language to do that, which is another language that you have to learn <laughs> for that time in your life. 
But then when you actually go into practice, and this is where education really falls short because a lot of educators are not practitioners. You know, of course, some of them are, but not all of them are. And they don't understand this kind of empathetic stance that you have to take with the owners to actually accomplish these kinds of things to meet the challenges of the built environment and architecture, which are much bigger than just getting this damn project done on time and under budget. These are all the variables kind of fighting uh, with any, you know, or pulling in different directions. I don't know that they're fighting, but this is like the concert you have to conduct as an architect. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I remember, um, I think it was uh, in third year sometime, I was having a conversation with my professor. And this particular professor is known to be an a-hole and really come down hard on on everyone. And so he and I were sitting there and, and we were chatting. And I was trying to explain my project. I wasn't getting some of the terms correctly. And he just like laid it to me. He's just like, how am I, your client, supposed to understand what you're telling me and trying to convince to me if you don't understand what you're trying to say or convince? You don't even sound like you're fully convinced because you don't understand the terms that you're supposed to be using. And obviously, at the time, I took it pretty hard that uh, wanted to fight it, but, um, <laughs> but <laughs> if I'm being, if I'm being honest, you, me flagpole now. Yeah, exactly. But you know, the, the longer and longer I practice and the more and more I kind of like reflect on these things, it really is that you need to be educated in what you're trying to tell them, whether it's terms, whether it's the you know simple things like the, the why and why you would even use a green roof system. I mean, we've got plenty of, you're, you're asking people to put vegetation on their roof. And if that doesn't sound like, you know, to the fairness of the maintenance folks, if that doesn't sound like a recipe for disaster of roots getting into the, to the roof and then clogging up the drain and then causing leaks and things like that. So you needing to understand like the functionality and the performance of that system and how to avoid all of those problems that they would have so that you could be able to talk to them about it. And then, you know, as you said, you know, go and talk to the administration folks and talk to them about like, you know, what is the benefits of, of having a green roof, you know, and talk about the energy efficiencies and things like that and talk about like carbon offsets and, you know, just start talking about all sorts of other things. But if you don't understand what it is that you're trying to convince somebody else, then why are you even trying to convince somebody to to use something because you don't even know you know what it is? And so, as you said, lunch and learns, you know, continuing education like this is absolutely imperative to at least understand. It's like, ooh, the next uh, lunch and learn is going to be about green roofs and the the reasons why we would use them, and also some of the common problems that happen objections, yeah. during that, you know, you have so, to be able to address the objections. Exactly. Cause like the one thing that I always particularly loves to do, especially during like the design process, I will play devil's advocate on virtually everything. I will sit there as somebody is like going through and they're talking about the designs that they've come up with. I will play the owner and the maintenance guy and, and I will start punching holes in their argument or their kind of like their presentation. It's just like, well, why are you going to do that? And it, it's not to be an asshole about it. It, it literally is trying You're to snarky bitch. Stop it. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. It's really trying to, and, and I explained this to him. It's, it's, I want to try to punch holes into it so that we can fill those holes so that we, when we are presenting it to the, well, you're owner, probably going to be one solving a lot of those problems yourself. Exactly. If they ask you, you know, well, why would you do that? We have to have an answer. 
We and I think this is this is this leads to other problems that I've seen, which is which is crazy to me that this even happens. But it's happened many times, which is a project manager will be out on a job site during construction and they'll be throwing their own <laughs> team members under the bus for oh, designing yeah. something a certain way. And that yeah. drives me absolutely freaking crazy because that yeah. is like I'm trying to be buddies with the contractor and I'm going to throw my teammates under the bus so that I look good in front of the contractor because I didn't make that decision. I don't know why yeah. anybody would make that. Oh, my gosh, that drives me absolutely crazy. And that is intolerable to me. Like you are you are on one team. You should be totally empathetic to your own team in that and say, you know what? I don't know why I'm going to go find out if you don't know, but you are not going to throw them under the bus. And as the project manager, ultimately, at the end of the day, it's your fault if something didn't get designed the way that you thought it should be, or it's like, I wouldn't have designed it that way. Well, guess what? You were actually responsible for it getting designed that way. Somebody has to make a a decision and make a call, and everybody needs to know why. And if you don't know why, say you don't know why, and you're going to find out, but you believe it's the right thing. Like You're going to give your team the benefit of the doubt, no matter what, because that's what you have to do. And if you guys messed up, you messed up and you own it and you fix it. Many problems are solved during construction, but you don't say, man, I don't know why we're doing this because that's a stupid idea. And it's your own team. (laughs) That's, that is like, nobody wants that situation, but I see it happen all the time. And the shame on you people who do that out there, that is terrible behavior. And if you think about this, then yeah, you're, you're literally setting every other architect up for failure because what you're basically saying is, is that you don't have trust in the architects that worked with you for you. So why would any other architect, I mean, why would any, why other, would anyone want to work with you? Yeah, exactly. What, you know, why, why would there be any trust involved there? Yeah, no, I, I trust me. I get that. And, and if I have the impulse to say, I don't know why the hell we did design it that way. I always bite your tongue. <laughs> I, I first bite my tongue, but then I also say, okay, uh, obviously this is, you know, uh, in conflict with, you know, either existing conditions or with the standard of practice that you guys deal with. You know, let's talk through. Let's decide together. Yeah, you know, let's exactly. Let, let's work together to try to decide on a better means of doing this detail. Cause if this isn't a detail that you guys are comfortable with, you know, first of all, why'd you bid it? <laughs> you should have known what that detail was and raised the red flag, but I'm not going to throw you under the bus. Not everybody goes that deep either. I mean, they just can't. So, no, but, and, and they can't. I mean, you're right for pointing it out. And at the same time, we know that the, the normal constraints of people. You know, this, this is also something that's also interesting too, that I've just seen, you know, through the course of my career, through the course of like education as well. There is this weird little kind of like us against them mentality yeah. of things. Yeah. And and when we're kind of like establishing this wedge between like, say, architects and contractors, a lot of times that also puts architects kind of like on defensive with other architects. It's just like, oh, I don't know why Evan did that. Mm-hmm. I mean, that doesn't make sense to me. Right. And it was just like, well, thanks for helping Evan out. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. It's, I mean, but it is true. I mean, why would you have is. done that? <laughs> Yeah. And so like this whole education piece of it is kind of, you have to have the self intrinsic motivation to learn about these things and the mismatch of timing for when a lunch and learn happens to when you're actually using or need that information becomes an information 
uh, juggling act that you have to get good at juggling as an architect because like the timing doesn't match the information isn't exactly what you need because you don't know what you need. Um, And so like to go back to a point you made early on in the conversation about you don't know what you don't know and you don't necessarily have the right information all the time. You just need to know where to find it. And so really it becomes kind of a bookmarking exercise for architects with continuing education. It's like, yeah, I need this now to meet my continuing education requirements, but there might be a point in the future when I actually can use this information on a project, Mm -hmm. who knows when. And this is one of those, you know, misaligned procedures between manufacturers, you know, product manufacturers and architects, which is timing. It doesn't make sense. Um, Is it a public project? Do I have to have equals that I need to establish in here as well? Who are those equals? Again, I don't know. As the architect, I don't. I'm just looking at this as an assembly that I would like to include on a project, but it's going to be public bid. So, are there equals? Tell me right. who they are. Just tell me. Save me the time because my time right. is money, right? Like I'm not a. <laughs> I'm not buying your roof. I, the owner's going to buy it if I can convince them. Give me what I need to convince them. Tell me who your competitors are so that I can also list them in the spec. I'll put you at the top as the basis of design. Like, right. But they, these are the kinds of things that, again, like talking about all of the different pieces of the orchestra that have to be orchestrated. Mm-hmm. There's also kind of these workflows going on behind the scenes that aren't necessarily aligned very well either. Well, that's all I've got on that. So are you going <laughs> to put green roofs on your projects in the desert, in the Saudi Arabian desert? No, no, I'm not. <laughs> now, talk about tumbleweeds. <laughs> yeah. Do Although a tumbleweed say, garden. That's a great. That's a great name for a band. Tumbleweed garden. Tumbleweed garden. <laughs> All right, we should get on that. Now, I will say what was interesting though is that going through the desert and actually like seeing the plants that are actually surviving and being able to thrive in the that environment. Yeah, they're a they're a hardy breed, aren't they? Yeah, I was going to say, you know that that tree right there or that bush or that little plant right there don't touch it because think about how much time evolution whatever what it's taken to get to that point what it's taken to get to that point where it can thrive in the desert hardy but but fragile yeah exactly yeah (laughs) well i would love to see more green roofs in the united states and i think you know yeah it's a marketing problem as well it's not just a it's kind of, it's like a mindset problem there. You don't see a lot of them. Therefore, there must be a reason for that. And I've heard about problems. Therefore, I'm never going to do that because it, no advancements have been made. I mean, I might as well yeah. assume yeah. no advancements have been made. It's safer for me to think that way. Well, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> this is the kind of thing that, that architects have to deal with uh, on every project. So like so many times, every new product that comes out that, you know, you've, learned about and you like, you know, well, that's, there's durability factors that, you know, say this new product has that the old product doesn't have. And you just have to try to like work around it. And it's, you know, again, it's educating yourself so that you can educate the owner. But a lot of times they're like, oh, no, 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 that that's too new of a product. I don't want to deal with it. <laughs> unproven. I think that yeah, un- I think unproven. That there's like new products and then there's new to me products. Yes. And it's the new to me products that really, honestly, sometimes take more convincing. Even if that new to me 
product has been around for 20 years, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's still new to me and it is proven. And I think that's also kind of where these product people have an opportunity to get involved and say like, man, uh, here is a project that you can go visit and talk to somebody and you can kind of just gather your own proof that you need based on, on this one, you know, this successful project. And yeah. that, that would, that's a super useful thing. I mean, product research is, t- is hard and because like, it's usually just done through a screen and you can't touch it and you can't feel it. And like, that becomes a whole other process that you have to manage if you want to get samples and you want to like, then you got this library of samples piling up and you got crap everywhere. And, and that seems kind of wasteful to me. Right. But then there's also this very real need to do that or, or go visit a place where you can see it installed and uh, that becomes part of the education of an architect as well. It's not really well understood during school because you're sitting in studio all the time just designing these things. And you just put a little leader to a thing, a note that says green roof or you show it in the rendering. But do you really understand that that thing has to be three or four feet thick to handle all of the stuff that needs to be in there so that it does drain properly and so that the roots mm-hmm. don't get to the, the roof drains or get under the membranes? There's so much technology going on in there that you have to kind of see it for yourself. And during construction is a great time to do that because you actually can see the kind of raw materials getting layered on top of each other to make that assembly happen. But that education process is, is long and it's, it's hard fought. Like it takes effort to go out and do this stuff. And there's so much pressure on our projects and on our teams to do less. So as we've been talking about this, I was just thinking about this one time on a project where it's K through 12 school. So obviously, you know, we know that the budgets aren't very high. And one of the biggest concerns is maintenance and durability of the material. Mm -hmm. And so we walk through a lot of their projects and you look at things, you start to realize that, you know, a lot of the product products that they're specifying don't necessarily have that longevity that durability aspect to the, one of the tenets of what you're designing to. Right. Yeah. And and so you're like, you know, I noticed that you guys are using VCT as, you know, your primary flooring. And you mean as far as like a district standard goes? Yeah. Yeah. And so, but we've noticed that we've been using in a different district, a different product that is, you know, not only a little bit more sustainable, but it also is far more durable. Specifically, I was, you know, this particular time that I'm talking about, you know, we were trying to convince them to using quartz tile rather than VCT. Mm-hmm. Very similar in appearance, but a lot more durable. And they're like, it's going to cost more. And it doesn't off gas. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't <laughs> off gas. And it, and it doesn't have the the level of asbestos that, I mean, there's, there's like a natural suitable level of asbestos in VCT that, you know, you're allowed to have, but it's there. And in, you know, and in quartz tile, it's not there. And in some other types of tiles and stuff that are very similar, you know, not there. And so we were trying to convince them of this quartz tile because we've been using it in other places. And they're just like, well, we don't understand. It's different than what we normally use. We've got this massive attic stock of other VCT. There you go. So, there you go. <laughs> exactly. We've exactly. got this, this existing stock. Oh, my God. And so they had asked us, you know, it's like, hey, so can you like do an installation that shows so that we can like look at the durability of this. You know, so I talked with the manufacturer and the manufacturer like, absolutely. You know, I mean, we can come in and we could basically do like a, you know, nice little entry 
you know, pattern and do like a little design in there if they want to. I mean, anything to like get them to understand that this is a product that they can rely on. It's, it's far more durable. And so when we finally got it installed, there is a few things that were um, different in the way that you're supposed to maintain it. But of course, they were maintaining it as if they were just using regular old VCT. And so there's a little bit of like discoloring because of like the chemical strippers that they were using, as well as like the wax product and stuff that they were putting on it, which of course, you're not supposed to be waxing either one of them, but they do that anyway. Because they do it everywhere. (laughs) Yeah. All floors are treated equal. We even wax the carpets. Thanks. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, And so... You know, there's just like, it's not standing up to like, you know, the same things that we do in this other product. And we're like, but you're not maintaining it properly. So, like, well, but we're going to maintain it this way. And, yeah. this, you know, this is how we have everything else. You're like, right. But if your entire floor is, you know, so the, well, why would we change our maintenance program just to have a better product? You're like, yeah, right. Uh, That's, that is the argument that comes up over and over and over again. That this, this reminds me of HVAC stuff. So uh, everybody yeah. in K-12 wants to use package units for the exact same reason. Well, that's what we've, that's what we have everywhere else. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay. And you could have something better starting now. With yeah, this, exactly. Right. You could, you could d- develop new standards for the future buildings and campuses within your district that are more sustainable more energy efficient, more controllable, are going to cost less for you to run, are going to cost less for you to maintain. Yeah, but but that's not what we have right now because I want to wax the carpets. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, it's so fr- that is such a frustrating process when you have like a a client that is a serial builder like a like a school organization, yeah, right? Where yeah. they're just building stuff over and over all the time. You know, many stories I have like that. Maybe I'll share you one last nugget. My favorite one is the, so one of the things that I noticed is that the schools around here, so a lot different than the schools in Florida, where the schools in Florida, because of the massive heat that happens during the summertime, they keep their air conditionings running all year round, keep it climatized and all that other stuff, you know, just build up a lot of humidity and stuff. Well, in, in the mid-Atlantic region, it is very similar. You know, you still have plenty of humidity. You have still have plenty of heat and everything else. But they do something differently. They turn off all of their HVAC units. And so I was walking through and I was doing a survey of a, of a building that we were about to do some renovations on. And I noticed that all of the ceiling tiles were sagging. Obviously, you know, it was the moisture was building up there a little bit of moisture. And so that the ceiling tiles were sagging. I'm like, well, you know, one of the things that we can do to avoid that is that these are two by four ceiling tiles. You know, we could go to a different type of ceiling tile, something that's got a little bit more moisture resistant. And Let's smaller. revisit that uh, existing stockpile. <laughs> so, so two, so two issues that they had. One was, no, we, we don't want to basically prevent us from having to replace our ceiling tiles every single year because all of the ceiling tiles during the summer start to sag. And then once we crank the AC back up, we come in and we pop out all of the tiles and we replace them. Makes a lot of sense, right? You know, well, I mean, why not just keep doing that? Or you can change the first, the size of them to go to a two by two. So you more support, less area. Yeah. Less area, more support, you know, and so there's a little bit of less set. You, you could, you know, potentially look at possibly running and actually saving money, your AC, which, you know, it's not necessarily that big of a thing. And so there was a variety of different things we talked about. 
so as I'm proposing that, they're like, well, you know, they give me the whole attic stock thing. We're always going to turn off all of our ACs during the summer because it saves us money. I'm like, you know, how does it save you money when you're always replacing your ceilings? And then they were like, see that guy right or the there? labor. They, well, they point to the head of their maintenance department for the entire county. Big fellow, rather large fellow. Bubba. And they basically said, if he can't fit into yeah. that ceiling, then we're not going to do that. I'm like, ugh, that is like the yep. worst excuse excuse ever. to save yourself money and time. Like mm. you could <laughs> mm. you could save yourself money and hire him an assistant that can fit through a two by two tile. This is not a politically correct thing, but yeah, when you have to make things uh, bubble sized, that is not the reason why you should do something like that. But no, no because especially well, I mean, it's just, yeah, yeah, you're right. It's, but the fact is, is that if you're, if you're making decisions based off of like poor decision making on like the, the amount of like money that you're spending to replace things on a yearly basis, why not make better decisions? Yeah. You know? <laughs> Mic <sighs> drop. Why not make better decisions? <sighs> exactly. Good luck with that. I, I actually want to rename our tagline on our podcast now to just stories from the trenches, man. That's what this is. I can totally. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. One of them is why is Cormac fallen back on the wagon of coffee to try to keep dumping coffee throughout his face hole all day long to stay awake <laughs> because he's working overworked all the time. Yeah. And who's paying for that coffee? That somebody else devised this life schedule for yeah back to our previous episode about uh, corporate sponsored drug addictions right (laughs) (laughs) yeah thanks for listening this show is part of the gable media podcast network see all the shows at gablemedia.com that's g-a-b-l-m-e-d-i-a.com You can help support what we're doing here by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help get the word out, and don't forget to share it with your friends. We'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment on the website at arcaspeakpodcast.com, where you can find our entire catalog of shows. Talk to you soon.